Good morning. I want to invite you to uh, take up your word and find the book of Jude. Uh, Jude is almost at the end of the New Testament. And it is a grand total of 25 verses. It takes about four or five minutes to read, so we'll read the book in entirety, uh, though we will not uh, talk about it this morning in, uh, in full detail. Hear the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroy those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as, as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner... These people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feast as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the seed, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom and utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all of the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last days there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. 
It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we know that apart from your presence here with us, that our endeavors this morning would be in vain. So we ask that by your word and by your spirit, that you would lead, guide, and direct our hearts and minds, uh, that we might behold beautiful truths of your word, and that we might love Jesus more and more this day. We ask in his name. Amen. I grew up in the 70s, and so I cannot be responsible for the clothes that I wore or the TV dinners that I ate or the roller skates that nearly killed me or my banana seat bike. I was not only cutting edge of style or technology, not much has changed, but our family did at least have TV. It was, as I recall, a zenith. 17 whole inches, rabbit ears, a turn dial. There's no remote back in, the, back in those days. No remote. And we got uh, four, maybe four channels if it was not too cloudy or too windy or any other uh, atmospheric conditions. And those four channels, 4, 7, 13, WGGS. We could a lot of, watch a lot of WGGS, not so much the other channels when I was growing up. One of the commercials, which I uh, do remember, which was not on WGGS, um, is the E.F. Hutton commercial. Do you remember that? Anybody remember that? Yeah. Uh, So here's the commercial. The scene is a crowded plane, and on uh, one aisle, uh, there's a man that leans across the aisle to talk to another man. And he's just read something from the newspaper, and he says to the man across the aisle, now that looks like a very interesting situation. My broker is very enthusiastic about it. What does your broker say? The man across the aisle from him says, Well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and then everyone on the plane turns towards this man who's getting ready to say something from E.F. Hutton. And it just, everybody freezes right there. And we hear the announcer say, When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And that certainly is the case for Jude today. When Jude speaks, when Jude spoke, it's scripture, and so we listen to it. He doesn't write volumes of letters uh, like Paul or John or even Peter, but when he writes, when he speaks, the church listens. This morning, we will not finish in detail the book of Jude. But what I hope to do this morning is really three things. Number one is just to whet your appetite for the book of Jude. 
Uh, that's, that's really one of my main purposes this morning, is to get you into the book of Jude uh, so that you're not afraid of it. it there's some strange things there, but uh, I want to just whet your appetite for that. And secondly, I want to help you gain uh, some insight on the background of what's going on with Jude's writings. So a little context um, here in the New Testament. And then thirdly, really just to expose you to the central message of Jude's letter uh, this morning, showing that this book is just as applicable today as it was when it was first written. And one other thing, this is the absolute worst outline you've ever had at New Covenant Church. Really, I'm not giving you an outline, it's uh, more of bookends. And so the beginning of chapter 1 is, is really to think through uh, being called by God and what we're called to do, and then the end of the book is to be kept by God. And so we are going to just look at the, kind of look at the middle, and uh, we know that called and kept are really bookends uh, rather than an outline. Um, so less outline, more of markers today um, in, in before you in your bulletin. So why the book of Jude? I mean, there are a lot of other choices that we could talk about this morning, but why the book of Jude? Well, when was the last time you heard a sermon on the book of Jude? Has it been a while? It's been a while for me. Um, I know we probably hit it um, in discipleship class, maybe on um, at some other st book studies that we do and discipleship classes or other small group Bible studies. But uh, it's been a while since I've heard a sermon from the book of Jude. Um, did you ever study Jude growing up in Sunday school class? Somehow it got skipped. You know, we talk about creation and Abraham and Moses and the Ten Commandments, and we, we talk about all these great things in the New Testament. Somehow the book of Jude just gets skipped. In 1975, uh, there was a uh, biblical scholar, his name was Douglas Rolston. 1975, he says that Jude is the most neglected book of the New Testament. And I'd like to change that. Let's not neglect it, uh, because it has a lot to offer for us today. When we skim, or as we've just read the book of Jude, there are some strange things going on. And unless you really dig into the book of Jude, you might just think, well, this guy's lost it. What is he talking about? And uh, what, what I want to tell you up front is Jude has an incredible Old Testament IQ. And we, he just rattles off several instances and examples of um, Old Testament illustrations. And so at some point in time, I'd love to come back and uh, work through those with you. But uh, really here, um, he's, he's dealing with a lot of things that we, we may not remember. He's talking about uh, uh, false teachers who are promoting deviant behavior and angels and Enoch and Korah. I mean, who in the world are those people? The book of Jude is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired, and authoritative word. We're given to it. It's been given to us. We need to know it. So it can't be wrong. We can trust it. And when God speaks through his word, we listen and do what it says. So this book uh, being a little different than a lot of books in the New Testament, uh, we know that this book is just as good today as it was when it was first written. Before we get into the main course, let's start with a little bit of an appetizer. We'll eventually get to the main course, the purpose of the book. Uh, but let's start with a little appetizer. Who is Jude? Um, who is this Jude that has written this book? Uh, Jude is the uh, English name for the Hebrew name Judah, which also translated to Greek is Judas. 
And so in the New Testament, we see that there are eight Jews named in the New Testament. Two of those are actually disciples of Christ, so it's a very common name. Uh, we see that Judas, the son of James, is a disciple of Christ, as well as Judas Iscariot. We see that in Luke chapter 6. Well, who is this Jude? Jude is Jesus' youngest brother, so he's the baby brother in the family. Uh, New Testament writers, uh, when they list out brothers, uh, they list them in age order. We see this in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. Jesus' brothers listed here are Jesus himself, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and sisters. And so uh, we see that Judas uh, is uh, here, uh, Jude, that Jude is uh, the, uh, the youngest of the brothers. And so technically speaking, Jude it, we know right here in the scripture is the brother of James and half-brother of Jesus. They have different fathers. So who is James? Who is the brother that he's referring to here? Uh, we know from verse 1, Jude and James are brothers, but who is this James? This James is also Jesus' brother. He wrote the book of James. He was a prominent leader in the Christian church. And we see his prominence in several places throughout scripture. For example, when Peter uh, was freed by the angel from the from prison and uh, he returns to the group that was gathered and it's important uh, that he was told to go tell James uh, it was important that uh, that James knew that he was freed from uh, prison in Acts 15 we see where James heads up the Jerusalem council in Galatians 2 we see that James is a pillar of this Christian faith so here we have this brotherly connection but one of the interesting things that I found in studying the book of Jude is that um, Jesus' brothers weren't on board until after the resurrection. For example, in Mark chapter 3, we see something really interesting about even uh, Jesus' mother and his brother, his family. Uh, it says here in Mark 3, he, according to the brothers and to his family, he, about Jesus, is out of his head. And in other words, the family thought Jesus had lost it and he needed to be committed to the funny farm. They were not on board with where Jesus was going, what Jesus was talking about, until after the resurrection. We see that in Acts chapter 1. After the resurrection, there was a group gathered in the upper room to pray, and there was Mary and Jesus' brothers. It's interesting to note what little baby brother Jude does not say in the introduction here. He doesn't say, all right, people, listen up. I'm Jesus' brother. He doesn't pull that card out. He doesn't play that card. Uh, but he says, first and foremost, uh, I am Jude, a servant. I'm Jude, a bondservant. I'm Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ. Jude says here, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my master. First and foremost, is that your description of yourself on Facebook or Twitter or when you meet somebody in person? Jude says right up front, Jesus is my Lord, my master, and I'm a servant. I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. I worked with a precious lady at First ARP Church in Gastonia, North Carolina for about eight years and every Monday, uh, she would make the entire staff this great big pot of grits and toast and coffee. She'd deliver it right to your desk. You didn't have to go anywhere to fix it. She just delivered it right to you. She was the financial secretary, but she was the heart of the church. 
someone would call and, and, and be in need of help or need a question answered, and 30 minutes later, Miss Nancy had prayed for them, had worked through some issues, and was just a great minister to those that would call the church. Miss Nancy could have had uh, any, uh, managed any uh, branch of any bank, uh, but she loved her job because she could serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't know it, but for about a year, Miss Nancy was taking care of her mom. So every day after work, 5 or 5.30, whenever she left the church, she would go to her mom's house. And her mom's health was declining, and so she would take care of her mom. She would clean the house and mow the grass and pay the bills. And by the time she was done with that, it was about 8 o'clock, and that was about the time her husband was getting off of work. So she would head home, and then she would cook, and then she would clean, and then she would pay all the bills, and she would do everything for her own house. And by the time the end of the day rolled around, she was just absolutely exhausted uh, but the next morning, she would get up early. She would have her devotion. She would have her time with the Lord. She'd be the first one to the office to make coffee and to uh, vacuum up a mess that somebody had left behind the day before. She was always ready to serve. Miss Nancy points us to the kind of humility Jude is refer referring to here. Uh, she loved being a servant of Christ. She loved being a slave of Christ. She points us to Jesus' definition of the greatest. The greatest among you will serve. So when did Jude write this letter? It's important for us to know this as well. It's around 65 AD. And so letters and things written in the New Testament, Old Testament, didn't have a date that come with them. So we, we deduce the date from what things were going around. This is about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. So how do we know this? Uh, we know this by what's contained in the book of Jude. There's Jewish mysticism. Jude lived in, lived in a pluralistic society where there were many belief systems and all were supposed to be tolerated. Jude lived in a relativistic society where there was no truth, that uh, this culture would follow many gods and many truths. Uh, there was revelation through dreams and visions. There was Jewish uh, end-time views and itinerant false preachers who snuck into the church uh, that said grace gives license to be licentious. We know that these were happening around these times as well as in the book of Second Peter. Very similar things happening near the second time, the, the, in this time period. So these issues uh, that were in uh, Jude's day, don't they sound familiar to us today as well? Jude's letter is not addressed to a particular church or person, and so there's really no clue to the date there. But we do see Jude dealing with uh, a distorted theology, a distorted teaching that was present in around 65 A.D. And uh, church historians like, uh, and, and, and other historians like Clement Tertullian, uh, Origen, Athanasius, all these are agreeing that it's about the same time, around 65 A.D., so why did Jude write this letter? Why do we have the book of Jude contained in the canon of the scriptures? That comes in verse 3. If you look there with me in verse 3, <coughs> he says to <coughs> contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Contend is an athletic term that implies fight and perseverance and strain and work. Contend for the doctrine that was once delivered for all the saints. Jude is not referring to a personal faith in Jesus Christ. 
He's not referring to personal salvation and relationship with Christ. He's referring really to that body of work that would have included the Old Testament, the law, history, and Psalms, and prophets, and other apostolic writings. This faith that was once delivered is the foundation upon which the church was built. It's the truth. Thy word is truth, uh, which is true for all people at all times in all places. Jude says three things about the truth. Listen to what he says. He says, first, in verse 3, contend for it. Bear witness to it. Stand upon the truth. Fight for the truth. He says, secondly, in verse 20, that we're to grow in this truth. And he says that by, by using this word, building and praying. He says, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit. The word building is a present participle with an active voice. It's not the past tense and you're done, I have been built. It's not that. It's not the future tense, I will be, but it's currently reoccurring and continuing action. Being built um, is is really the expression here. It's a continuous action. Praying is not a one-and-done thing. Praying is praying earnestly and honestly and praying and praying and praying and keeping on praying. So he says, first, contend for the faith that was given to you, the doctrine that was given to you. Grow in it. Build yourselves up. And thirdly, he says, reclaim. Reclaim those who were lost. This is verse 22 and 23. He says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And this is our calling today. Contend for the truth. Grow in the truth. Fight against the schemes of Satan by yielding the sword of the Spirit, reclaiming those who are lost. Lead them by the power of the Holy Spirit to repentance. We have family and friends and neighbors who needed to be flooded with love and grace and mercy and patience and and even at times tolerance, but they also might need a little bit of truth. And that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where it's so hard for us. We've been told for years and years and years, just be tolerant of everybody. But now the rubber meets the road, and Jude says, don't be tolerant, but contend. There's a line in the sand. We need to know where that line is, and we need to contend for the truth. Truth mixed with love and grace and mercy. As we read the book of Jude, we really do face a couple of challenges here. The uh, Jude and 2 Peter issue that I mentioned a little bit before is, is something we need to work out. So Jude and 2 Peter were essentially written, essentially written at the same time. Most have Jude right around 65 A.D., and most have 2 Peter written at 67 A.D. So if you're familiar with, at all with 2 Peter, uh, you'll know that there are actually verbatim agreements between the two letters. So we see in 2 Peter the exact same words that are used in the book of Jude. We see this in 2 Peter 2.17 and Jude 13. Uh, there are very similar ideas that are presented in both of these letters words and Old Testament illustrations. And really the consensus is quite simple. Peter had Jude's letter, and he used it, and he quoted from it, and he learned from it. 
Jude was written in 65 AD. His letter was circulated among Christian churches. Peter reads Jude's letter and writes the second letter dealing with similar topics and issues and uses Jude's letter and quotes from it. The second issue we need to deal with is some of the strange things that we've heard. So we get under and get to understand Old Testament illustrations. And Jude's Old Testament IQ is just off the charts. He knows the scripture, and we see this. And so he lists out several examples for us. For a few of these, are the Israelites that were in slavery in Egypt from Exodus chapters 1 through 14, the fallen angels who followed Satan from Isaiah 14, Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, Cain, Genesis 4, Balaam, Numbers 22, Korah, Numbers 16, but what about these other references that he is referring to? These are uh, non-biblical writings that were written probably between the times of the Old Testament and the New Testament writings. And these books were never received into the canon of the Bible, but folks in Jude's day would have been very familiar with them. It might be like um, if I were to quote from Nicholas Sparks. Well, he's a New, uh, best, uh, New York Times best-selling author, um, and so or John Grisham book. So if I quoted from one of those, that's exactly what Jude's doing here. He's quoting from literature that was very familiar to his audience. Other non-biblical writings were simply writings that uh, were very familiar in, uh, in Jude's day. For example, the book of Enoch, the Assumptions of Moses. These are two books that he quotes from. Um, today, it would be like me quoting from, uh, like I said, one of the other books that you would be very familiar with. So what's going on in all these details of why Jude is using these other non-biblical examples? We get the Old Testament. We get that. We should use Old Testament examples. And, uh, but these other non-biblical um, quotes and references that he uses, it's really simple. He's communicating gospel truth in familiar terms so that the church might get his message. He's communicating gospel truth in familiar terms so that the church might get his message. It's as my old pastor used to say, you need to prepare your sermon with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. He was being relevant to his audience. Jude's not the Old Testament writer to do that. Paul does it a lot of times. We see it in 2 Timothy. Uh, Janus and Jambres are the names given to the early extra-biblical Jewish writings in the Egyptian, to the Egyptian magicians in Exodus chapter 7. We're not told their names in Exodus chapter 7, we're told their names in an extra-biblical um, writing. But Paul picks that up, and he tells us that in 2 Timothy. In Acts chapter 17, Paul quotes from two different sources, probably Epimenides and Erastus, who were popular po uh, poets in that day. We also see in Titus chapter 1, where Paul quotes from another poet. Uh, he says, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. So, uh, so Jude's not the only one to use extra-biblical sources as part of his writing, part of his letter and communication to others. But let's be clear. Quoting from the book of Enoch doesn't mean that the book of Enoch is inspired or should be included in the canon of Scripture. Uh, Jude was simply writing so that his audience would understand and get his message. So if we stop and take a look just real quick at an outline for the book of Jude, it's going to help us uh, with the flow and see the purpose of where Jude's going this, in this little letter. So in the first couple of verses, we just see his greetings. And uh, his greetings, it really is powerful and it's very effective. We also then see, secondly, his writing of the purpose of the letter. 
It's interesting that uh, he intended to write them about their common salvation, uh, but rather he found it necessary to write to them about something else. We see the main body of uh, this, this passage dealing with false teachers from verses 5 through 16, an exhortation, and then the doxology there at the end. From this simple outline, we can see Jude's purpose in writing his book. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, that was plan A, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That's plan B, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in, that's the only uh, place in the New Testament that phrase is ever used, have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert grace. Here's, here's what's happening inside the church. Uh, perversion of grace uh, of our God into sensuality. And then secondly, denying Jesus, denying our Lord and Master Jesus Christ. And so that's the issue. That's the false teaching that's happening there in, uh, in the book of Jude around 65 AD. So the main purpose, really, of the book of Jude is to deal with false teachers, to confront false teachers who use Christian liberty, who use God's free grace, God's saving grace as a license for immorality. This was a real threat for the church in 65 AD, and it remains a real threat in 20, 2017. Orthodox, or right, true thinking, orthodox doctrine this faith that was once delivered to all the saints, or truth. So this orthodox doctrine has, in many denominations and many churches, been tossed out. Judas calling out followers of Christ that deny the faith in this teaching and in life. He is taking action in a situation where people with membership in the Christian church live such evil lives that they could be called godless and it could be said of them that they deny Jesus Christ. And we see that the people do not live, uh, that the, the people do not live licentiously and deny Christ as a result of the proclamation of, of truth, just the opposite. Jude emphasizes the judgment of God is certain. Those who live like heretics will inevitably face eternal punishment. Jude's examples make this point abundantly clear. The faithless Israelites, the sending angels, Sodom and Gomorrah, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Jude's audience knows of people who should be faithful servants of God, and they know that God has warned them of these false teachers through the apostles. And so we again find this little letter as applicable today as it was when it was written. In our day, tolerance is the golden rule. It is important not to be judgmental. It is important to be uh, that, that we treat our brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters who may practice somewhat different manifestations of the authentic gospel, but Jude reminds us that there are limits. The church must realize that it is possible to refashion the gospel so radically that the heart is taken out of it. The heart is the faith that was once delivered. It is possible to reinterpret the Christian life so that it ceases to be too demanding and degenerates into a way of living indistinguishable from the world. In the face of such attitudes today, Jude's warning is indispensable. 
Beware of grace perverted. And Jesus denied, Jude says. May I give you a few examples of today's church and leaders leaving orthodox, solid biblical teaching. And this is hard for me, and it's hard for all of us, because we don't want to point out a speck in someone else's eye when there's a plank in our own eye. So it's hard to do this, but Jude says, contend. And so I'm contending, I'm calling out, I'm calling out an error, doctrinal error, that needs to be realized. Jude's message to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints is just as relevant today as it was when written. Because I want to be fair and appropriate and perhaps just Southern, I'm not going to call out folks by name, but rather just tell you the false doctrine that uh, is uh, relevant and um, widespread in our area in the church today. A few examples. Uh, Example number one. An angel appeared, this was said by a uh, Bible uh, professor. Um, He said, an angel appeared to me And she said, you know, what's wrong with all that? Anywhere in the Bible that an angel shows up, number one, if you're not terrified, you're probably on the wrong team. And number two, if it's a she, you're also probably on the wrong team. You know, really, um, way off course. Uh, Second example, if you have enough faith, your father will be healed from cancer. That's so hard. Because that's putting faith in faith rather than in the one who can actually heal. A pastor proclaims from the pulpit, I had a dream and the Lord gave me a word for you this morning. And it's not the Bible. It's not scripture. It's not the real word of the Lord. Another example. The Bible is too hard to defend. The resurrection gives us a firmer foundation than the Bible. If the Bible is the foundation of our faith, Christianity Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards religion. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards that comes tumbling down when we discover that perhaps the walls of Jericho didn't. Infants have a right to receive communion. A pastor hears directly from God, not God's word, and he writes a sermon in 10 minutes claiming that there's no Hebrew word for commandment, but God intends the Ten Commandments to be the Ten Promises. A pastor teaches hyper-grace theology that leads to a marital affair. In our own presbytery, men must profess orthodox, historical, biblical Christianity, and they are examined on it. From views on creation to ordination of women, from LGBTQ to new, per, new perspectives on Paul, be glad that there is a tight filter. Pray for those that examine and pray for those who are being examined. But trust me, I would rather have dental work while skydiving than be re-examined in Presbytery. Even in our own Presbytery, there, have men, there are men that have been deceived by hyper-grace, and deceived and denied Jesus by their lifestyle. Let me take just a moment to point out and remind you how hard it must be 
to be a senior pastor or a solo pastor. I've never been a senior pastor or a solo pastor. Don't think I ever want to be. I'm, my, you know, I've gotten a glimpse by being on pastoral staff of what it's like. Uh, but remember this, this job that David and Mark have as your, your pastors, your teaching elders, uh, your ruling elders. It, it's a tough job. Uh, there's a Gallup poll that was put out a few years ago, and the question was given to church members. The church members were asked, how many hours do you expect the pastor to work each week? So the question is, how many hours do you expect the pastor to work each week? And, of course, they start with about 40. Everybody says, yes, 40. And then it's 50, yes, 50. Uh, then it's 60, yes, 60. Well, by the time everything is said and done, the average church member, that's me and you, the average church member expects that the senior minister should be working 114 hours a week. 114 hours. Well, that's just a lot of hours. Uh, that's just exhausting. Uh, brothers and sisters, you've got to remember to pray for David and Patty and Mark and, and Denise. And these folks that are right here on the back of your connection, these need to be first and foremost in your prayer life. Pray for these folks. Pray for Joe and Melissa. They're on the front lines of contending for the gospel. Our elders are on the front lines of contending for the gospel uh, we need to remember to pray for them. Uh, they are burning the candle at both ends, and they need our prayer. They need our support. Um, and so we must do that. Um, so are we coming to New Covenant Church with a dead faith or a living faith? Are we coming to New Covenant Church to see what we can get or to see what we can give in worship and support and love for one another? David and Mark are not the only ones that are on, uh, contending on the front lines for the truth. David is not called uh, to be a one-man show. Each of us, every man, woman, and child, is called by God to know the truth, to love the truth, to stand on the truth, and to defend the truth. You think you're really too busy to engage in the truth with your friends, your family, fellow church members? Try working 114 hours. That's a really busy week. David's not a one-man show. We've got to support him. We've got to love him and care for him. Beloved, if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Contending for the faith means standing for and on the truth of God's word and unreservedly supporting those on the front lines. We all are called to contend Jim Burgess uh, wrote a, a little article several years ago about the first battle of Bull Run, which was July 1961. I want to read a little bit of this for you. It is popular, almost legendary, a, a, a popular, almost legendary story that innumerable citizens armed with picnic baskets followed the Union Army out of Washington in July 19, uh, 1861 to watch what everyone thought would be a climatic battle of short rebellion. The majority of spectators were well out of harm's way on Centerville Heights, some five miles from the fighting. In truth, many sightseers packed picnic baskets, but this was more of a necessity than a frivolous pursuit on a Sunday afternoon. Centerville is a good 25 miles from Washington, a seven-hour carriage ride one way. The sightseers would need nourishment during the adventurous excursion. 
Near Centerville, Captain John Tidball witnessed a throng of sightseers who approached his battery. They came in all manner of ways, he says, some in stylish carriages, others in city hacks, and still others in buggies or horseback or even on foot. Apparently, everything in the shape of vehicles in and around Washington had been pressed into service for this occasion. It was a Sunday, and everybody seemed to have taken a general holiday. All manner of people were represented in the crowd, from the most grave and noble senators to hotel waiters. The London Times correspondent William Russell observed, On one hill beside me, there was a crowd of civilians on horseback and all sorts of vehicles with a few women. The spectators were all excited, and a lady with opera glass who was near me was quite beside herself when the guns started blazing. This is splendid. Oh, my, isn't this first rate? Ultimately, the curiosity seekers got caught in a stampede of retreating Union troops. Most of the civilians uh, joined, if not led, the flight back to Washington and escaped unharmed. Beloved, we are not called to be spectators with opera glasses and picnic baskets, watching as our leaders and fellow churchmen and women fall prey to false teachers and false doctrine. We're called to contend for the faith, knowing that we will be kept by him and he will present us blameless before the presence of his glory. Between the markers of called and kept, we are commanded. Get out of the stands, get on the field, contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, this morning we come recognizing that your word teaches us to be humble, to be servant, to be reliant upon you, our master. We're also reminded this morning that we must know the truth and love the truth and walk in the truth. That we know is a work of your grace and love and mercy to your people, that we would be not only called, but that we would be kept by your spirit and your word and truth and means of grace. Father, we also know this morning that through your servant Jude, that you would call us to be contenders, that you would call us to be fighters, that you would call us to be ones who would stand for the truth and know the truth and be able to distinguish that which is true and that which is false. By your grace, keep us until that day of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.